Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Politicians are tasked with steering the economy and spreading prosperity. But shockingly, not all of their claims about money and markets stack up. I want to know which political truisms are misleading us. And in today's dumb question of the week, what is insider trading? All right, let's get into it. So, Roman, I don't know if you remember, but when we started this podcast, we had a rule that we were not going to talk about politics. For this episode, we're going to bury that rule and probably <laughs> dance on its grave. But the thing is, as an investor, you can't ignore politics because a lot of asset returns are driven by politics. Yeah, we were forced to talk about it a little bit, weren't we, when Liz Truss got involved with the markets? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, one of my favourite reviews for this podcast it was a five-star review on Apple from a guy called ACI125. And he said, a really informative and fun podcast on investing in the financial markets. The only downside is that Michael's left-leaning politics usually worm their way into the program at some point, and he never misses an opportunity to slag off the government or sneer at Brexit. Otherwise, highly recommended. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you're getting away with it, Roman. Yeah, well, obviously I'm, I'm better at hiding it, Michael. <laughs> but of course, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool capitalist, having worked in the investment banking industry. Sure, sure. But I think it's, it's kind of like a twofold responsibility on the part of politicians. It's easy to be populist and almost bend the truth in your favour and not try and educate your populace about investing and about how markets work and about how debt works. All of these things are the responsibility of the government as well explaining your policy and explaining how it helps the economy. But if you try and twist it to your benefit, well, everybody's poorer off, I think. Yeah, it's definitely the case that the incentives are not aligned, really, between the political sphere and the economic sphere. Because with politics, you just want to get people on your side. And sometimes the way to do that is to drum up anger against, you know, the banks or whoever it might be. Yeah, bank bashing is an obvious one. But there are also things about debt, which we'll get into, but also things about housing policy, many important things which affect our lives. I don't think politicians do a good job of explaining it. I mean, I guess the hot topic at the moment, both in economics and politics, is interest rates rising and how that's being sold to the public in terms of how it passes through to mortgage rates and savings rates available from banks is getting quite political. Like We're seeing people questioning whether the banks are acting appropriately. And there's been a Treasury Select Committee which has looked into this very topic and they've come up with some talking points and of course they're saying that banks are profiteering. And I think a lot of the headlines have been misleading. And again, I think the media is also partly to blame for this because they also haven't corrected the fact that really from the bank's point of view it's not just about the rate at which you lend, it's about the ability of people to take out their money from the bank almost immediately. That's what's really critical from the bank's point of view, because that's very risky for a bank. And if a customer can take out their money any time, then you want to not incentivize that kind of behavior. So what you'll try and do is have a higher rate if they're willing to lock in their deposit for a longer period of time with a term deposit. Yeah, because what Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, has said is it's taking too long for increases in interest rates to be passed on to savers, he says. I, mean, I think there's maybe a misunderstanding about what deposits from consumers are actually there for, for the bank. They're a way of funding the bank, right? And if the bank doesn't have high funding needs right now, why is it going to offer higher interest rates on call deposits, like you say? Yeah, they also call them site deposits. 
But the point is that it's really risky for the bank to have that because if people do pull out their money, then it could easily trigger a run on a bank. So I think it's important to understand that distinction and why banks have deposits. But of course, it's so easy to score a point here by saying, look, we've got higher interest rates, we're doing the right thing, but these nasty banks are not passing it on to you as a saver. Yeah, because there's an interesting point I saw, which was that part of the transmission of monetary policy, like why is the Bank of England raising interest rates? One reason is that by offering higher rates to savers, it encourages people to delay their consumption. So there's less money being spent in the economy and demand cools off. But there's an interesting dynamic here where the higher interest rates are not moving through the mortgage market so quickly because people are on their fixed terms. So it's like slowly rolling over. But in the savings space, it obviously comes in much quicker. So it actually could be in some ways counterproductive that people are earning more money on their savings and have more available to spend. So in that case, you would want them to lock up their money for longer. So there's probably an incentive here economically to push people into the, you know, the two or three or four year fixed rate savings accounts. And in a sense, monetary policy has created this monster because we have had a period of zero interest rates when many people have paid off their mortgages and they've done the right thing effectively. You know, they haven't behaved badly. But those people who now are mortgage free are now putting money into savings. And essentially, they're breaking this transmission mechanism because they're doing the rational thing. And they are getting more money on their savings. So especially if you're willing to lock up your money longer term, those rates have increased by about four percentage points since the Bank of England started its rate hiking cycle. But yeah, the current accounts have not increased by that much. And that's where the political focus is coming, because that's the kind of rate people see advertised. And I recently plotted this for our members. I just looked at what some of these money market funds have been paying in terms of the yield. And quite a few of them, the accumulation ones, where they don't pay you actually cash payment, but they actually accrue it continually into the actual value of the fund. Those have almost instantaneously picked up the higher rates as they've increased. So if you plot Sonia versus their yield, the two track one another very closely. So Sonia's the sterling overnight index average rate. Well, that's the point, isn't it, though, that those money market funds are not deposits at a bank. And so if you want a high rate without locking up your money, you have to go into money market funds. And if a lot of people do that, then it will push the banks to up their savings rates because <laughs> they'll be losing money. There'll be deposit flight. And I think there is some deposit flight already. I think people have kind of caught on to the fact that they can get a much better rate elsewhere, either in a cash ISA or with a money market fund in a stocks and shares ISA. And in the US, if you look at what's happening there, it's a similar story. People have been pulling money out of their bank deposits and putting it into money market funds. I think the role of the politicians here when it comes to banks should be to just make sure there's proper competition and it's easy for people to move their money between accounts, right? They're not here to try and manage every interest rate in the economy. Yeah, and it's really worrying when that happens, when politicians step into the pricing mechanisms and say, look, this is what the rate should be. Because whenever that happens, usually it creates all sorts of problems down the road. That's not to say that there aren't problems in a completely deregulated market. That's certainly not true. But when politicians are doing things, usually they have a fairly short horizon that they're thinking about, which is the next election. And the problem you'd be storing up here by making banks overly reliant on these short-term deposits that customers could flee out the door with any second is that their funding becomes shaky then and much more liable to a bank run if we were to get some sort of economic problem. And of course, they become less profitable, which nobody's going to lose much sleep over if banks become less profitable. 
But it's a business, right? You can't just have a business where the government's going to step in and say, I'm going to reduce your margins. Who's going to invest in that country? I think that's the point some people have been making, that when you look at the net interest margin of a bank, which is basically the difference between the interest rate it makes on the loans it gives versus the interest rate it pays on the deposits it has, that has been increasing. But it's not significantly above historical averages. It was just very depressed, right, in the last few years. It's sort of mean reverting. I mean, we're not going to be winning any friends here, Roman, by sticking up for the banks, are we? Because everyone, <laughs> when they see the interest rates go up from the Bank of England, goes, my mortgage rate's gone up, but the bank's not putting my savings rate up. Like, that is what everyone says. It's not just politicians that feel this. But there's a bigger point here, which is that if you make banks less profitable, and if they've got a smaller war chest of cash, then effectively you're just lining up another credit crisis. If banks can't lend for the next crisis... The whole point of a lot of the regulation to do with banks is that they set up this counter-cyclical buffer where they've got extra cash set aside during the good times and then during the bad times, they can continue to lend so they don't amplify the problems when there is a problem with the economy. So you've got to let banks make hay while the sun shines sometimes. Otherwise, like you say, it stores up problems further down the road. I'm not even sure they are making hay. They're probably looking down the line and thinking, hmm, the housing market looks wobbly. We could be on the hook for some big losses here if people start defaulting. And a period of weak growth, which is never good for banks because they are cyclical. They are linked to the economy and their profits are linked to the economy. And people are not going to be happy if we have to bail them all out again. <laughs> I think that would be harder to stomach, actually, in the long run. Yeah. So ideally, we don't want to get to that point by forcing them there. Last time they did it all by themselves. So there's definitely a misunderstanding, I guess, about what it is banks do. But I think there's also a misunderstanding from politicians about what it is that asset managers do. So I've got a tweet here from Bernie Sanders, which he posted last year. And it says, Today in America, just three Wall Street firms, BlackRock, Vanguard and State Street, manage $22 trillion of assets. These three firms are major shareholders in more than 96% of S&P 500 companies. It's obscene. Now, <laughs> what's the mistake Bernie's made there? Well, imagine that you've got a company, all a little bit like BlackRock or Vanguard, which has lots of passive funds. Well, that's forced to buy the stocks of pretty much all companies in the world. If it has a global index fund, for example, that's what it has to do. That's part of the description of the fund. So that means that they'll be on the share register for all of those companies as if they owned the shares, as if they were an active investor. But in fact, all they're doing is passing through the cash from their investors in their passive funds. They're not the active investor here. No, they're the custodians, aren't they? They're managing it on our behalf. It's our money, Bernie. <laughs> Probably your money as well, Bernie. Yeah. But it's interesting. I saw this uh, tweet, which was from a lady in America who said, I won't go to this restaurant because it's owned by BlackRock. And they're a woke company. So she refused to eat at this restaurant because it was presumably in some kind of index. I can't remember what the restaurant was. I think it was Chick-fil-A. So she had to go to this really awful chicken place across the road. How do you find these tweets, Roman? But this is definitely a trope, isn't it, in political discourse now, which is that BlackRock owns everything, right? I see that all the time as a misunderstanding, primarily on the left. And it is just genuinely they've misunderstood what this is. Like, for example, Bernie Sanders obviously as a socialist, and wants common ownership of the means of production, I imagine. Well, that is what Vanguard <laughs> is. We're always pooling our money to own the companies, right? Vanguard is even owned by its investors. That's how it's structured. 
it is kind of a socialist enterprise in a way, Bernie. Except your vote doesn't really count if you own the stocks via BlackRock. Yeah, that's the kicker, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, if you could tell BlackRock, okay, this is what I think on this policy, and somehow they'd act based on their investors' views, then fine. But that's not the case. It never passes through. I mean, they are going that way. So BlackRock have a scheme called Voting Choice, which they brought in at the start of 2022 to make proxy voting easier for institutional clients. Now, I imagine that will start to roll out to retail clients over the next few years. And that is the flaw here, isn't it? Is that capitalism relies to some extent on shareholders steering their company in their own interests and in the interests of society, whereas that link gets weakened if it's all done through passive investing. Yeah, and it used to be an argument against passive investing, I think, which is you didn't have this kind of agency, you'd given it up effectively by the way in which you got stock exposure. But technologically, it's now become much easier to do that. It's not beyond the realms of possibility that you could have BlackRock asking all of its investors, how should we vote on this topic? Yeah. So I think that'll probably happen. But certainly for the time being, Bernie's got a point. Well, he didn't say that. He said the other thing. I've got a soft spot for Bernie. But I think he's barking up the wrong tree there. I mean, just a step back here. Maybe the biggest mistake I hear repeated all the time by politicians is that Britain is the fifth richest country in the world. So, for example, in a speech Jeremy Corbyn gave when he was Labour leader, he said 14 million people are living in poverty in our country, which is the fifth richest country in the world. Now. I don't think there should be that many people in poverty. That's not the point here. The point is, are we the fifth richest country in the world? And the answer is, no, we're not. We do have the sixth largest economy when you measure it by nominal GDP, and that's based on market exchange rates. But is that really what matters here? I don't think so. Now, normally people use PPP to work out the size of the economy. So this is purchasing power parity. The question is, what does one pound buy in terms of goods and services? And if you adjust for that and compare it with other countries, then it kind of slides down the scale, doesn't it? So what you're saying is a Big Mac is going to cost a lot less in India than it costs in Britain. So their buying power would be larger, and that kind of should flatter the size of their economy. So on the PPP measure, the UK is the 10th richest country in the world. Okay, so that's not as good as sixth, but not too bad. But again, that's not what really matters, because not every country has the same amount of people. What really matters is GDP per capita. If you divide the economy up per person, how much is there? So on that measure, the UK is the 22nd richest country in the world with market exchange rates, or the 29th richest using purchasing power parity, which I think is the best measure here. So we're not the fifth richest country, we're probably the 29th. But all of these are different measures. I think there is no single measure of country wealth. Certainly in terms of productivity, the UK is pretty weak. If you look at how many goods and services each person produces per hour, we're not very good. Yeah, and I think if you're looking at why are people in this country feeling that we've stagnated over the last, I don't know, 20 years, why are we feeling poorer in many respects, despite the fact on that broad measure we're the sixth largest economy, is because that's the wrong measure to look at here. I think GDP is the wrong measure. I think there are other measures which look at well-being, at quality of life, and it's not just about money. And I think other people have produced these kind of quality of life measures. They have. I'm always slightly sceptical of them because they always like show people in Scandinavia are super happy, but then they have the highest suicide rates and stuff like that. So I was like, are they really that happy? But there are other things you can look at, for example, how unequal a society is and what it's like for the worst people in that society. 
So if you're poor in the US, for example, there were some beautiful graphs which were done by John Byrne Murdoch, who's one of the data visualization journalists at the FT, which showed that if you're poor in America, you're much worse off than, say, if you're poor in Europe. So I think for a lot of people in society, what matters is how bad can it get? What's the kind of safety net in your society? And for the average person, what's life like? But bringing it back onto investment, I think the reason why this matters is because things like productivity and things like poverty will not benefit investors. Because if it becomes too extreme, what it creates is political instability. And ultimately, you get these strikes, you get people becoming less productive if they feel as if there's no point in working. Yeah, I heard Jim O'Shaughnessy say the guillotine risk goes up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So I feel like we've maybe picked on Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn. Let's even this up. Let's look at something George Osborne said. So he tweeted, in the last decade, our help to buy policy helped hundreds of thousands of families buy their own home, supported thousands of construction jobs, and made billions for the taxpayer. Now, that's a controversial claim. Now, it's certainly true that it has boosted house building. There are more houses that were built following the introduction of the policy, or at least a lot of houses were built using the policy after it was introduced. In the early years, yeah. Yeah. We should probably say what the policy is. So help to buy was where the government basically offered people an equity loan to help them purchase a property. And then later on, it became just targeted at new builds. But there is one group of people who definitely benefited from this, and that's the house builders. So they saw their volume of transactions increase a lot, because if suddenly you have a large group of people who can now afford new builds, whereas previously they couldn't, then clearly that's going to increase the volume of business you do and your profitability and could only afford new builds once the policy became targeted exclusively new builds. So you basically pumped up demand with taxpayer subsidy for one subsection of the housing market without much in the way of supply gains. So there was a report by the Lord's Built Environment Committee last year, which found that these help-to-buy loans actually inflated house prices by more than their subsidy value, which is interesting, isn't it? So you basically pushed up house prices buy more than the money you loan people. So you effectively made house buyers worse off by doing this policy. And for people who can't get the help to buy, clearly you've made houses which are almost unpurchasable. So for example, in London, if you look at the median house price paid under help to buy, that increased from 323,000 in Q3 of 2015 to 447,000 in Q3 of 2016. So just in one year, the median price increased by over £100,000. Yeah, it was a bit crazy what happened. And this report concluded that the schemes, and I quote, do not provide good value for money, which would be better spent on increasing housing supply. And that's the point, isn't it? We have so many of these government schemes over the years, which have looked to boost demand, basically shoveling money at house buyers to try and get them to better compete with other house buyers, kind of self-defeating policy. The money arguably, should be going into directly building more houses. That's how you get people on the housing ladder. You make more houses, surely. And I think another problem with the UK housing market is that you've just got essentially an oligopoly where you've got some big companies which effectively control the market. And it's not in their interest to increase supply a lot. They're not going to do that because it means that they'll have lower prices for the houses they do sell. And it's interesting that the kind of houses the help to buy scheme push people into, like you say, it was primarily 
new builds. And there was a survey by the consumer group Witch in 2020, which found that one in seven homes bought under the scheme have actually lost value since purchase. And quite a few people are in negative equity. And that's because there was this massive premium placed on new build homes. And we'll see how it unfolds now with the potential for a house price crash. Because the other thing this scheme does was effectively made the British state, the government, equity owners in those houses, right? They own a little bit of the house. So it's all well and good, George Osborne saying, we've made billions for the taxpayer on paper. (laughs) But we'll see if that doesn't turn into billions of losses for the taxpayer over time. Now, that's not to say that government policy can't help the housing market. It certainly can. And if you look at the example of America after the Second World War, lots of people were coming back from the war. They created this 30-year mortgage market. They created Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and encouraged home ownership. So one way to create a kind of funding market which works is to create a kind of government guarantee for the structured products into which the mortgages are packaged. That's effectively what the US government did. You're still bitter that we don't have 30-year mortgages, aren't you? I can feel it coming. Well, for me, it's not going to make much difference. I'm currently 50, so, you know, 30 years is, is pushing for <laughs> right. me. But, but I think certainly for my kids, yeah, 30-year mortgages would kind of make sense. Maybe not now, but when we go back to slightly lower rates. We mean 30-year fixed-rate mortgages, don't we? Yeah, we do. We did actually have fixed-rate 25-year mortgages just before the financial crisis in 2007. I think it was... Halifax and Nationwide, off the top of my head, who offered these products. But obviously, they come with a higher interest rate than your short-term fixes. And the demand just wasn't there. People didn't take them up and then they got pulled from the market. So maybe we're our own worst enemies in this country. People just want the absolute cheapest rate now, even if I'm just pushing the problems of future me in two years' time. But if you just come off a period of very low interest rates, and it wasn't super low at that point, it was before the financial crisis. But if you just come off a period of fairly low and constrained inflation, a period of great moderation, as it was called, maybe that's going to make you less willing to lock in a long-term rate. I don't know, maybe that was it. Yeah, I mean, those people called it absolutely right. Yeah. Interest rates were about to stay at zero for the next 15 years. So yeah, you didn't want to fix in 2006, 2007 for 25 years. But the thing about the US mortgage market is that you can switch to another mortgage product with no penalty, right? You can just go and lower your rate when rates go down. But the housing market is a real problem, I think, in the UK. Maybe our biggest problem, because it affects everything, like where people can move. Can they move to the more productive areas like London? Not easily right now. And a lot of people point the finger at, we have too many empty houses. You've probably heard this a lot. But when you look at the stats, that actually doesn't seem to be the case. So there's some data from the OECD, who have a lovely chart, which looks at the vacancy rates in property markets around the world. And for example, in Japan, the vacancy rate is up around 13, 14%. In the United States, it's around 11%. And this is all data from 2020. But then you go all the way down the graph and right towards the bottom is the UK, which is less than 3% vacancy rate. So it just seems that we don't have that many empty houses. And we haven't got much room. If you compare the UK with the US, it's just striking how much empty space they've got versus here. It's the kind of drawback of being on an island, I guess. A small island, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing is, it's an easy thing to blame, isn't it? For like high house prices and high rents. People look and go, well, there's just too many houses rich people have and no one's living in them. Which just, yeah, the data just suggests, if anything, the problem is we don't have enough vacant houses. We just need to build so many houses that we can afford to leave them vacant. And you can almost guarantee that every new government comes up with a plan for increasing supply. 
but it never seems to materialise. There's always something that happens and it kind of falls by the wayside. The thing that usually happens is the planning regulations, right? Yeah. We've got these laws which basically favour the NIMBYs, the not-in-my-backyard people, who just can veto, effectively, housing development. We don't have zoning laws like in the US where there's kind of an assumption of planning permission. And there's a secondary problem here, which is that a lot of young people, if they want to buy a new house, they'll try and buy it close to the capital or close to a large city where they can get higher wages. And in the UK, a lot of that is in London, with this huge wealth divide between London and the rest of the UK. And there just isn't the space around London to do that. Well, there is, but it's all designated greenbelt land, which people think is, you know, meadows and sunny fields, which is not really the case. It's a lot of scrubland and golf courses. <laughs> <laughs> like, seriously, could we solve the housing crisis by just building over every golf course? You see, I thought that by having less people in the office, that would kind of solve the problem because you could still get a London-type job without having to live in London. But that doesn't seem to have really happened. I mean, we've talked about houses a lot, but maybe the most pernicious piece of misinformation in the sort of political economic space is the analogy you always see between the government finances and household finances. It's so well acknowledged to be flawed by economists there's even a whole Wikipedia article about the government household analogy and how it's flawed. So, for example, there's this quote from Theresa May, who was responding to a question from a nurse who said that she hadn't had a pay rise for eight years. And Theresa May said, there isn't a magic money tree that we can shake that suddenly provides for everything that people want. But then, of course, we got the COVID pandemic and they shook that tree hard. Yeah, they found the tree. You also saw David Cameron repeatedly reference the maxed out credit card of the UK and often compare the government finances to, you know, running a household and budgeting and saving and spending what you earn. So why is this analogy flawed then? Well, if you haven't read Stephanie Kelton's book, you should do. It's brilliant. But the fundamental point here is that a government can print money. It can literally create money out of nowhere. And that's because it can borrow in the debt market and also its central bank can print money. And the other point is that a large chunk of the national debt might be held domestically and often is, which is the equivalent of one household member owing it to the other member of the household, right? It's not all owed externally. And personally, I like the idea of buying a government bond because effectively it's like voluntary taxation, but you get paid in order to provide funding for the country. That money is going to be used to pay for things like bridges, like your country's defence like redecorating the house at number 10. But in return, you get paid some level of interest, which is great. It's kind of like a sweetener for doing something good. And just when you talk about interest rates, the rate the government pays on its borrowing will generally be much cheaper than any individual would pay. And it's not like they always have to balance the budget because they have an indefinite planning horizon, effectively. The money the government spends today might have a massive multiplier effect and return down the road. It's an investment a lot of the time. And there's a nice graph from Stephanie Kelton's book where she shows that when the government pays off its debt, it's more likely to create a recession. And we're in a kind of odd situation where we expect the central bank to pick up the pieces when there's a recession. And the only thing the central bank can do is affect interest rates and maybe QE as well, money printing. And yet what the central bank can't do is affect supply. That's the job of the government, and they can do that via their fiscal plans, how much they spend. And what we've really failed to see over the last decade is any kind of synchronisation in policy between the government and fiscal policy 
than monetary policy from the central banks. That would have been much more powerful if the two had worked in tandem. And what we're seeing right now with the inflation that we've got is largely a result of that lack of synchronisation. We've got stimulative plans from government at the same time as central banks are trying to put the brake on the economy. And we had the opposite over the zero interest rate period where we had austerity from the government at the same time as very stimulative policy from the central bank. Yeah, in the UK, that's certainly true. I mean, you said that the risk of recession is generally higher when governments are running a fiscal surplus and pulling money out of the economy. Do you know of any correlation to stock returns, for instance, or bond returns, I guess, depending on the fiscal policy of the government? Certainly, if there's lots of issuance, it's going to push up yields. And also, if it is stimulative of growth, that'll increase yields on government bonds. Now, that pushes down prices, of course. So certainly, this does have an effect. The supply of debt will affect the yield. The effect on growth will affect the yield. And what we're seeing now is a real bonanza for bonds. I can't believe it, but bonds are coming back into fashion. So thank you to all of the central banks and the politicians for making bonds fashionable again. How long will they stay in fashion though, Roman? That's the question, really. Well, I think they'll get even more fashionable when we're starting to talk about inflation coming down, because then people will be talking about lock-in rates for longer periods of time. And how do you do that? Oh, you can buy a government bond. The thing that sometimes confuses me is that throughout the zero interest rate era, people said this has massively pushed up asset values, which has disproportionately benefited the rich versus the poor. And it seems on the face of it to be true, right? It was a great decade for the stock market, house prices, bonds, whatever. But now interest rates are rising. I'm seeing like the same thing said. I'm seeing, well, this is great for the rich and those with assets who are earning higher returns on their money, but really bad for the poor who can't afford houses. I don't know which is true. Is lower interest rates good for the poor or higher interest rates? It seems like nothing. (laughs) I think it's path dependent. I think you started off reasonably well off at the beginning of the zero interest rate decade. And you bought a house, you invested in stocks, you'd be in great shape by the end of the decade. I think it's worse now for young people. So for my kids, for example, they're both in their early 20s. They're having a bit of trouble finding jobs because the economy is not in great shape. It's very expensive to buy a house because house prices are still very elevated relative to income. So I think that divide between young and old is the one that's really problematic. Some people say we should actually be running inflation hotter, and that's what helps people further down the income distribution over time and erodes the value of assets, is if we ran inflation at 4% for a decade. So if you imagine someone who has a large pool of capital, then they become less wealthy, they have less buying power, if all they have is cash. I think the theory here would be that wages will keep up with inflation, but asset prices won't. So therefore, over time, you're kind of rebalancing towards workers, people earning a living rather than living off asset returns. I don't know if it's true, but I read it and I thought, hmm, I need to think about that more (laughs) rather than just assume inflation should always be 2%. It's certainly true at the moment. I mean, if you look at the wage growth that we see right now, it's way above what it's been in the past. Still negative in real terms in the UK. But if you just look at the latest inflation print right today, actually, from the Office for National Statistics, that kind of showed this worst of two worlds scenario where real wage growth is still negative, but it's high enough such that it's inconsistent with the Bank of England's policy. And that means that we'll probably see rates continue to go higher. The Bank of England doesn't have a choice. But wages today are still where they were 15 years ago in the UK, in real terms. And yeah, house prices are so much more. 
Yes, I'm not convinced that having high inflation is going to help the poorest in society. Usually, they're the ones that bear the brunt of it. That's what you hear, isn't it? That poorer people spend more of their money on food and energy, which has been a big cause of the inflation, and therefore they're much worse off from it than a richer person. But yeah, it's interesting to see how quickly the 2% inflation target became just the accepted wisdom. It's not been around that long when I looked at it. It came in in like the early 90s from, I think, New Zealand. Am I right? Yeah, they were the first one. And now it just seems to be like a law of nature almost. Well, it has to be positive to stop you just hoarding cash. That's one thing which I think is widely agreed. The exact number, 2% is kind of reasonable. We just need one country to go crazy and run it at 8%, just so we have like a, a contrast to try and do some back tests on. Maybe Erdogan will be right. I hope we're not alienating too many people with our politics episode. <laughs> I remember I worked at the BBC for quite a while and we always used to joke that the way we know we're being impartial is that we've annoyed everybody. <laughs> so maybe we'll have that today. Equal offence. I mean, I think one of the main points of everything we've discussed is that quite a lot of the economy is outside the control of governments to a large degree, right? They're not steering the economy, as we so often hear. You often see governments taking the credit for or looking to blame previous governments for things that they didn't have that much influence on. So, for example, Labour obviously got blamed for the global financial crisis in the UK, but clues in the name, right? Global financial crisis. (laughs) And in the US, you always see politicians trying to take credit for job creation stats like Biden's doing at the moment, saying how many more jobs he created than Trump. Well, a lot of that's the COVID effect (laughs) where that drop came just randomly. And again, I think we've seen it recently, haven't we, with Rishi Sunak and setting that target of halving inflation this year, which he might regret now because as he's learning, the government can't easily halve inflation itself. Yeah, I think the ironic thing is that governments can break the economy, but it's much harder for a government to fix the economy, partly because it takes a long time to do it. A lot of the policies won't happen within one term. And of course, they lose interest after it spans more than one term. So I think that's why really the kind of time period over which politics operates is very different from economic cycles. Yeah, definitely. If you have an election every five years, you know, that's at best half the business cycle. I mean, the ironic thing sometimes is that what the markets and the economy leads long term is certainty. It just needs the government to set a course and then stick to it over decades without interrupting growth along the way. Yeah, and just not do something very creative. Just don't break it. That's all people want. (laughs) Yeah. Now, political risk is a real risk. And if you want to discuss it and see how it affects your investments, then why not join our online community? You can learn more about that by just going to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week. What is insider trading? Now, someone who's been in the investment banking world and scarred by their experience with the compliance department, I'm very familiar with insider dealing and how to avoid it, of course. Not yes, I was going to say. Not as someone who perpetrated it. But essentially, it's when you publish something which is going to materially affect the price of an asset and it's disclosed to just a subset of the world. So it has to be publicly disclosed simultaneously to everybody if it's going to move the price. That's the gist of it. Yeah. So insider trading is when you trade on a stock based on non-public material information about the company. 
And there are all sorts of examples you're taught. So somebody over dinner just hints that they know something about a deal that's being done, but it's a deal which hasn't been published yet. What do you do? What you mustn't do is trade on the back of it or tell anyone else about it. That's completely a no-no. I mean, it's interesting how the definition of insider trading has kind of broadened over the years. So it used to be that, yeah, it's the idea of someone works at a company, they know that a deal's going to go through tomorrow, they buy a load of stock today, right? But there's this new theory, the misappropriation theory, which is now accepted US law. And Matt Levine sums it up by saying, insider trading is not about fairness, it's about theft. And the idea is that when you're trading on information your company has, you've effectively stolen their information to potentially front-run trades they want to do, right? So you're not allowed to trade on it because it's not yours. And the other implication is around something called shadow trading. Have you heard about this, Roman? I haven't actually, no. So, okay, let me sum this up for you because I found it super interesting about a wheeze some people have thought of to try and get round insider trading. So let's say you work for a pharmaceutical company and you know that your drug trial is going to be a success and this new class of drugs is going to cure cancer. Obviously, if you go out and buy a load of your company's stock just before the announcement, you're going to prison, right? But what if you know that there's another drugs company that's making some kind of similar drug? Their stock price is probably going to spike too. So could you just go and buy their stock? No, I don't think you could. That's probably insider trading too, and that's shadow trading. But it gets really weird. So what if you work at a drug company and they discover a drug that cures COVID? Now, you could look at the market and say, wow, all those cruise line companies are super depressed in price. If we announce that we've cured COVID, I think those cruise companies are going to bounce back in price. So what if you buy the stock in a cruise company and then it rebounds? Like, you just, I mean, you get several layers removed from it and you can kind of trade on second order effects. Where do you draw the line for insider trading? I'd still say that's non-public material information. I'd still think that would be insider trading. You've got to prove it in court, though, Roman, if you're the SEC. None of this is financial or legal advice, for sure. (laughs) But I love Matt Levine's laws of insider trading. This is just genius. All of Matt Levine's stuff on insider trading is amazing, and people must read it. He has, over time, compiled a list of laws based on real cases. So here's just a few of them. Number one, don't do it. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) pretty good. Number two, Don't do it by buying short-dated out-of-the-money call options on merger targets. That's pretty indirect, isn't it? Well, he makes the case that a lot of what the SEC does is look for like really obvious signs of insider trading. And whenever there's any merger or acquisition, they're immediately looking for, okay, did anyone at these companies buy any call options (laughs) recently? Number three, don't text or email about it. Number four, don't do it in your mother's account. Five, don't talk loudly about it on the train from Washington to New York. (laughs) These are real cases, aren't These they? are all real cases. <laughs> Six, don't do it by planting bombs at a company and shorting its stock. <laughs> I think that was a case in Germany around the football club Borussia Dortmund. The next law is don't do it while employed at the Securities and Exchange Commission. <laughs> and especially don't Google how to insider trade without getting caught before doing it. <laughs> And one of my favourite ones, the last point. If you are planning to insider trade, probably don't keep a Google Doc spreadsheet of Matt Levine's laws of insider trading. This will definitely show up in the SEC's complaint against you. (laughs) Oh, we've blown it already. 
Yeah. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.